Amen. Well, I'd ask you if you would to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 11 as we continue to work our way through this book. Revelation chapter 11, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 15 to 19. And this is a passage that is characterized by great praise. If you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word as I read this to us. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. This is God's word for us this morning. Amen. May he be praised. Please be seated. Well, growing up, I love the story of Richard the Lionheart. Many of you know it. According to the story, Richard went off to fight in the Crusades, and he fought bravely. But while he was gone, his brother John usurped the throne. He was evil. He was cowardly. But he took over the rule of England, and because of his mismanagement and because of his cruelty... Uh, the nation of, of England, the people of England, suffered greatly. He was something of a tyrant. But then, just when things seemed most bleak, that's when Richard the Lionheart came back and put down the usurper, and then he began to rule. And through his good rule, England was restored to greatness. You know, really, that story is a story of redemption. And while the history is really quite different, it's a good story. Uh, actually, it's an echo of a much greater story. That story of redemption is ultimately just an echo of a greater story, the story of redemption that we learn in the Bible. You see, the world, uh, the world actually has fallen under the evil rule of a usurper. That's what Christianity teaches. Uh, Satan is real, and he's the one who leads the kingdoms of this world according to his evil will. And because he is an evil tyrant, this world suffers. And we see that. We can see that around us in the brokenness that we see in this world. There's a cause for that. You know, but the Bible also teaches that Satan is not the true king. And the Bible teaches that Satan's days are numbered because the true king is coming back. And when the true king comes back, and that's God, when he comes back, he's going to put down all of his enemies. He's going to reward those who have followed him. And those who have followed him are going to live with him forever in a perfect world in a new heavens and a new earth. Now, that, that story, that story of redemption, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with that story, that is at the heart of our passage for study this morning. Actually, these verses, verses 15 to 19 of Revelation chapter 11, this is where we get the announcement, the inauguration of that kingdom. Here's this great proclamation made that all is going to be well forever and ever because the true king is coming to establish his reign and he will reign forever. He's going to judge his enemies. He's going to reward his servants. And he's going to fulfill all of his covenant promises. So we're, 
continue our study in the book of Revelation. Last time, a few weeks ago now, we looked at verses 1 to 14 of this chapter, and we saw the vision of the two witnesses. Uh, we said that that vision of the two witnesses, along with the vision of the, of the mighty angel in the scroll, was something of an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And in, in that interlude, the people of God were encouraged and they were instructed uh, about God's purposes for the world. But now, in verse 15 and 19, we come to the seventh trumpet. And this is a significant point in this book. Because with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, we come to the final period of kind of the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth. Uh, the seventh trumpet, this section of Revelation, really runs from verse 15 of chapter 11 all the way to chapter 16 and verse 21. And in chapters 12 to 14, we're going to see several visions that instruct and warn and encourage God's people about things that will happen in the last days. And then in chapter 15 and chapter 16, we're really going to see the impact of the seventh trumpet when it is blown. Because seven angels are going to pour out seven bowls, and those bowls are going to be kind of the final outpouring of the wrath of God against his enemies, his judgment of this world. And after that judgment, all that will be left is for Christ to come and establish his kingdom. This morning, again, we're looking at verses 15 to 19. The trumpet is blown, and God's victory over his enemies is proclaimed. And that leads to celebration. I'm hoping this is going to be a joyful sermon for us this morning because the tone of this passage, it's one of joy. It's one of celebration. It's one of acknowledgement that the future is not in doubt, that God wins. And because God wins, those who belong to him, well, we win as well. And so this is a passage that can minister to all of our hearts as we study it together this morning. It's a wonderful thing to know that God's final victory is certain, that our God is going to reign as the undisputed king forever and ever. Now, this morning, we're going to do a, an exposition of this passage, and then we're going to focus our hearts on three truths. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to focus our hearts most especially on three truths from Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. The first truth is that our God will reign over heaven and earth forever. We'll see that most especially from verse 15. Our second truth is that God is worthy of praise. We'll see that as we look at verses 16 to 18. And then our third truth is that our God will keep all of his covenant promises. And we'll see that when we study verse 19. So let's look at this passage, kind of dive back in and work our way through it and see what God's word has to say to us this morning. Look at the first part of verse 15. Now, keep in mind that John has just given us two visions that he saw, uh, the mighty angel with the scroll and then the two witnesses. But now in the first part of verse 15, he begins to talk about the trumpet. And what's interesting about it is he introduces the trumpet as if there's been no intermission. He just kind of picks up and carries on this narrative of what happens as the angels are blowing their trumpets. Now, as a reminder, according to kind of the historic premillennial view that I hold of Revelation, these seven trumpets are really seven end-time judgments that are going to be poured out upon the earth in the last days. And as we've seen... There are partial judgments. Uh, they're judgments of warning. God is saying the end is coming. Turn away from your rebellion. Find salvation in Jesus before it is too late. But when we get to the seventh trumpet, I mean, that's so clear when you look at the first six trumpets. But when you get to the seventh trumpet, you see actually the, the seventh trumpet is a bit different. There's, there's more here. The seventh trumpet is the third woe. So if you remember that three woes have been 
proclaimed. Three very difficult trials, judgments were coming. And the first and the second woes occurred when the fifth and the sixth trumpets were blown. But now we come to the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet. The fifth and the sixth trumpets, they only contained one judgment each. But the seventh trumpet is different because it contains more than that. So think about it. When, when, the, uh, when the Lord opened the seventh seal, what happened? The scroll, as it were, was opened. God's end-time agenda is opened. And with that came seven trumpets. Seven trumpets coming out of that seventh seal. Now, something very similar has happened. When the seventh trumpet is blown, now we're going to come, and then you're going to have seven bowls of God's wrath that are going to be poured out. And when they're poured out, God's judgment will be complete. So we're going to hear this morning voices in heaven praising God for establishing his reign. That's really the passage we're looking at, verses 15 to 19. And then we're going to see several visions of events that will happen in the last days. You'll see that in chapters 12 to 14. But ultimately, the blowing of the seventh trumpet leads to the final outpouring of God's wrath uh, as his judgment is brought upon the world ultimately. And these judgments that are coming, they're not to be partial. They're not partial judgments. They're total. They're complete. And that's what Revelation chapter 15 verse 1 says. It says, for with them, God's wrath will be completed. Now, accordingly, it's important that we keep in mind that the seventh trumpet is not a single event. Uh, In other words, the seventh trumpet is going to blow, as it were, over a period of time. We saw that in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. An angel told John, but in the days when the seventh trumpet will blow his, excuse me, when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed, as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So when the seventh trumpet is blown, many events will occur. We're going to study those and read about those. But ultimately, the impact of the seventh trumpet is going to be felt when the seven bowls are poured out upon the earth. Now, looking at the second part of verse 15, we see that when the seventh trumpet blows, praise breaks out in heaven. Uh, This praise actually runs from the second part of verse 15 all the way to verse 18. It includes the praises of heavenly voices. They're unnamed. We're not sure exactly who these heavenly voices are, and it includes the praise of the 24 elders, uh, the 24 elders that we first met back when we studied Revelation chapter 4. This praise is a declaration of God's triumph. Actually, in many ways, it's it's a summation of what is yet to come in the book of Revelation as Christ comes to establish his kingdom. And even though the events haven't happened, right, the events haven't happened in our kind of study through the book of Revelation, What I love about this section is the certainty, the certainty with which these heavenly voices proclaim the ultimate victory of God. So just listen again to the second part of verse 15 to verse 17. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So, friends, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet have not yet been thrown into the lake of fire, and yet those in heaven have no doubt about how this is going to end. God wins. God wins. And that's one of the central themes of Revelation. God wins. And those who follow him, 
when we enter into that glorious victory. You know, I didn't have much confidence during the last national championship that my beloved Georgia Bulldogs were going to be able to pull it out against the Alabama Crimson Tide. And it was a very sweet and special thing for me when they did. And I'm hopeful this year that we may once again win the championship, but I'm, I'm not very confident that that's going to happen. But you know, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter if the Georgia Bulldogs win the national championship, does it? In fact, a lot of the victories that we want to see happen in this world, they actually don't matter, do they? The only victory that ultimately matters is certain. God wins. He conquers all of his enemies. You know, Jesus won the victory at the cross. That's when, that's when the contest, he won. This is just kind of like the mopping up of that battle. The outcome is certain. God is going to win. He's going to reign forever. A new heavens and a new earth. It's the hymn that says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Now that's a sweet truth for us to keep in our minds. And we do, we have to keep it in our minds because this world is constantly pressing against us to get that truth out. And we're constantly showed all the bad things out there and all the difficulties, and all the scary things, and all the hard things that could happen to us. So, so yes, the culture's getting darker. Uh, yes, persecution may rise at some point in America to a higher level than it is now. And yet we know that God wins. And that truth should impact us. It should change the way we live. According to a recent survey by the American Psychological Association, the year 2020 was the most stressful year on record. Now, who finds that surprising? The year 2020, the most stressful year on record. And 45% of Americans say that they feel more anxious now than they did a year ago. So their anxiety's actually just gone up. And they're afraid. They're afraid of their loved ones dying. Uh, they're afraid of their loved ones becoming seriously ill. They're afraid of mass shootings. They're anxious that they're not going to have enough money for retirement. And, you know, the, the reality is, if we didn't know how it was all going to turn out, there's a lot of things out there that are scary. There's a lot of things out there that are too big for us. But Christ Fellowship, listen, we do know how it's going to turn out. It, it's, it's not in question about what's ultimately going to happen. The Bible's super clear. This passage is super clear. God wins. And because we are with him, we win with him. So here's the point for us. Christ Fellowship Church, we don't have to be like everyone else. This world is living according to the truth that it has embraced. And the truth that it has embraced is that this world is scary and it's out of control. And anything could happen at any moment. And you never know when a bad thing's going to happen to you. Friends, that's not the world we live in. That's not the world the Bible presents to us. The Bible tells us we have a sovereign God who is in control of all things, that he knows when the sparrow falls to the ground, and he loves us far more than many sparrows, that he's in control. The Bible tells us that. And then the Bible tells us that God wins. And so you see, as we look into the future, I, I don't know what's going to happen between now, kind of in my journey of life. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, this afternoon, what suffering may come into my life. I do know that I'm going to reach the farther shore of heaven. I do know that the king is going to reign in his glory forever and ever. I know that I'm going to see it with my own eyes. And so I have every resource I need. 
because the Spirit of God lives within me to live courageously, to live confidently, uh, to have a spiritual boldness about how we live, uh, to be able to take risks that perhaps other people wouldn't take because we know that our eternity is secure in Christ. We do not have to be like everyone else. We do not have to be controlled by fear and worry and anxiety. Instead, we can live distinct, light-filled, salty lives that are marked by joy and confidence and hope. Well, look at verse 16 to 18. You see the 24, angel, the 24 elders. Now, they join in this celebration. Uh, as we said when we studied Revelation chapter 4, the 24 elders represent kind of the people of God from all ages. And while we're going to say more about their praise later in the sermon, it's very clear as you look at verse 16 that their praise is marked by reverence. They fall face down before God, worshiping him. And in verse 17 to 18, we see that their praise is focused on the reign of God as king. God is king. Uh, and it's a reign that's going to be marked by judging his enemies. And it's going to be marked by rewarding his servants. Now look at the first part of verse 19. John sees a vision of the heavenly temple. The temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of God appeared in his temple. Now, in the Old Testament, the ark of God was known as the ark of the covenant. And in the ark was kept, uh, was kept the stones, the law, the Ten Commandments that Moses had brought down from Sinai. The presence of the ark among the people was the presence of God. It was the representation of the presence of God among the people. And God shows John this vision of the ark at just this moment, just when his, when his kingdom is being announced uh, as a blessing. Uh, as a sweet, uh, visible reminder that God is reigning over heaven and earth and that God is the covenant God. He's the God who keeps all of his promises. And what a sweet truth that is for us. John sees flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and severe hail. All of that speaks of the, the majesty of the divine presence. And that's also a gracious reminder because... Keep in mind, as we study through chapter 12, 13, and 14, that in the last days, there are going to come serious difficulties and suffering. But once again, we're reminded of the power and majesty of God, who is able to see us through all things. It's a, it's a beautiful passage, right? It's a passage that proclaims God's ultimate victory, that God will visibly reign over heaven and earth. Now, looking at this passage, I want us to spend the rest of our time together this morning, and I want us to kind of dive back in. I want us to focus our hearts on three truths that we see. The first truth found in verse 15 is that our God will reign over heaven and earth forever. Look at verse 15 again. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. On August 24th, 410 AD, the Visigoths, led by their king Alaric, sacked Rome. And the eternal city was shown to be not eternal after all. May 29th, 1453, the Ottoman Turks, led by Mehmet II, conquered Constantinople. And the last physical kind of vestige of the formerly great Roman Empire ceased to exist. In our own day, we see a massive decline of morality and even economic power in our own nation. It is another reminder that the kingdoms of this world do not last. But there's a kingdom that lasts. 
There's a kingdom that endures forever and ever. That's what we see in verse 15. Now, we read about it earlier in Hebrews 12. It's called a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Other kingdoms can be shaken. God's kingdom cannot be shaken. Augustine called it the city of God. And our passage, verse 15, calls it the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. But of course, you know, the fact that God's kingdom is going to endure forever means that the current kingdom must be conquered. I found that interesting as I studied through the passage this week. Did you notice that the word there, kingdom, in the phrase kingdom of the world is singular? What would we expect? We would expect the kingdoms of this world because that's what we see with our eyes. We see nations warring against nations. We see kingdoms fighting against kingdoms. We'd expect it to say the kingdoms of the world, but it says kingdom, similar. What is that? It's a reminder that this world is under the sway of the evil one. That ultimately there's one source of authority, it's an anti-God authority that is at work among the various kingdoms of this world, organizing them and directing them in rebellion against God. But the day is coming when that kingdom is going to be overthrown. The day is coming when God is going to reign. Why? Because Satan is not the true king. You know, like, like Prince John, Satan is the usurper. He's a usurper. He's not the legitimate ruler. And the days of his evil empire are numbered. That's the burden of verse 15. John is reminding us that the day is soon to come when God will cast down Satan and his kingdom. And God's kingdom will be established forever and ever and ever. And Satan, along with all who follow him, will be cast into the lake of fire away from the presence of God forever and ever and ever. And then there's this beautiful reality. That for eternal ages, heaven and earth, as it were, become one, and the true king reigns. And those who belong to him reign with him forever and ever. There's a picture of this in Revelation chapter 21, which we'll study later, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Now, let me give you one observation and one word of warning before we move on. The observation is that the world as we know it is passing away. That's important for us to keep in mind. It seems stable. It's all we know visibly, physically, in terms of our senses. But the world as we know it is passing away. Now, the vast majority of people in our country are living as if this current reality is all that there is. And so they're living their lives to acquire as many things, or to experience as much pleasure, uh, or to achieve as much success as they possibly can during the brief span of their life. And while they know the world is broken, uh, everyone knows the world is broken. We all deep down know this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Still, it's the only world they have. And because it's the only world they have, they cling to it. You see, people live according to what they really believe. And the people of this world live according to what they believe. And brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap. Because we, we do see all around us this world physically. 
We live in an affluent country, so many of us can surround ourselves with toys, nice clothing, delicious foods. We can stay indoors. We can avoid taking risks. We can be like the, the fool of Luke 12 who, when his goods increased, what did he do? I'm going to build bigger barns so I can store more stuff, so I can have more things. And he tells his soul, eat and drink and be merry because you have many goods. But friends, the Bible teaches that this world is not going to last forever. And so we should not live like it is. That has major implications for how we think and how we live. In other words, because this world is passing away and because God is going to reign as king forever over heaven and earth, we need to have a hope that is forward-facing. Uh, we need to be a, a group of people that are characterized by thinking about the future and focusing on the future and living for the future as opposed to imagining that this present life is all that there is. In other words, we need to live for heaven and not for earth. That means instead of laying up treasures in bigger barns, we should be laying up treasures in heaven and we should study God's word to know what that means. And instead of isolating ourselves in comfortable homes, we should instead use those resources for the sake of blessing others and inviting them in so that we could help them come to know Jesus. If they don't know him, that's evangelizing. Loving those who don't know Christ so we can tell them about him. Or, or helping those who do know Jesus grow in Christ-likeness. And that's discipleship. Spending time intentionally together uh, around God's word so that we can grow and become like Christ. Instead of being marked by fearful TV news watching, Afraid that our comfort and safety might one day be taken from us, we should instead be marked by prayer uh, and praying and asking that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and you've heard me, Christ Fellowship, you've heard me talk about the news a lot. And I bring it up over and over because I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned about what I see it do to individuals who consume the bad news of the news almost constantly. And I don't see joy and confidence and hope. I see fear and I see anxiety. And so pastorally, I have a concern that we would not be a church that's marked by fearful TV news watching, but instead we would be self-controlled in the amount of content we take in and we would make the majority of our time focused on Christ and his glory and his word because that's what's going to last. That's what's ultimately real. Instead of trying to live the American dream, we should set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we should live like we are just passing through because this world is not our home. And we are just passing through. So that's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for us. May God help us live this way. And may God help us be a church that encourages one another to live this way. And it's challenging to do, isn't it? It's actually hard to do. It takes us loving one another enough to think through what it looks like to set our minds on things above and laying up treasures in heaven and having a forward-facing hope. May God help us do it. Our God will reign forever over heaven and earth. The second truth, our God is worthy of praise. Look again at verse 16 to 18. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come, 
The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. There is praise here. There's joy here. There's anticipation. Uh, They've been waiting for this moment. And now the heavenly hosts know that the moment has come. And so they burst forth in a celebration of praise. And the praise is rich. And looking at the way the 24 elders praise God, you notice that they praise God for his glorious attributes and for his eternal reign and for his just judgment. So let's look at those one at a time. Look at the first part of verse 17. The elders praise God for his glorious attributes. That word attribute, it means characteristics, who God is. So we give thanks, Lord God, the Almighty who is and who was. So they praise God as the Almighty One. Uh, Our God is omnipotent. He is strong. He's mighty. They praise God for his eternity, that God dwells outside of time. God is the God who is and who was and who is to come. And friends, the praise of these 24 elders, it's a good reminder that we as the people of God should know our God and praise him for who he is. Uh, We should know the attributes of God so that we could praise God thoughtfully. Uh, We can meditate on who he is. We can thank God for who he is. Or God is wise. He's just. He's holy. He's loving. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's self-existent. He's eternal. He is independent in no way depending upon us, but providing for us all things that we need for life and salvation. Our God is glorious. And it is right for us to take the time to know him so that we could praise him according to who he is. Now, that is a really good plug for theology, not theology for the sake of knowing more than other people, but theology for the sake of doxology, studying God and his attributes for the sake of being able to praise him intelligently for who he is, because we've been commanded as the people of God to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. We should be in awe of this God. But if we're honest, we often get distracted, don't we? We're created to glorify God, to be in awe of him, to worship him. But we often get distracted with awe substitutes. I saw a somewhat pathetic example of this recently. I just happened to be watching a world's strongest man competition. Now, you can ask my children. I I don't do that. But I just happened to be watching this for a few minutes. And there were three huge men. I mean, these were mastodons. These were big guys, right? And... The competition was to carry something like a 400-pound bag like this uh, down a 20-meter path and back as many times as possible. So these, these men, uh, they grab these bags, and they just start running. You know, my back would just collapse in an instant, you know. But they're running back and forth down this track. And you, you think, now that would be a pretty impressive sight to see that. But then as I watched, I looked behind the men, and I noticed a pyrotechnic display As they're running, flames are shooting up. Now, what is the purpose of the flames? They don't need the flames to do the competition. You you think it would be enough watching these massive men carrying massive amount of weight. You think that that would, would keep our gaze for more than a few seconds. But apparently, in our age, that's not enough. You need shooting fire now. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because just think about our culture. Right? We have things like uh, X Factor and The Voice. 
with lights and music and celebrities. And we have Hollywood award dinners with sports cars and fancy dressing and dresses. And I'm sure the dressing is good too. Fancy dresses <laughs> and movie stars. Uh, we have NFL games with 100,000 fans just kind of crammed into the stadium and they're shouting and they're, they're cheering and they're sometimes crying over 22 men who are throwing around a leather ball. And with all the lights and the loud music and the fireworks, it's easy for us because we were created to have awe, to be in awe. It's easy for us to find ourselves overawed. And what happens is we begin to worship. But the problem is we're worshiping things that are not ultimately worthy. We're, we're being distracted from what we were created to do with these all substitutes. I, I'm not saying it's wrong to watch a football game. I enjoy watching a football game. It is wrong to worship athletes. That's wrong. We shouldn't have idols in our lives. If we're not careful, we can easily find ourselves in all things that aren't ultimately very important. Instead of fixing our eyes on God and praising him for who he is. That's what the praise of these 24 elders does. It reminds us that our God is ultimately glorious, and so we should praise him. We should be in awe of him. Now, Look at the second part of verse 17. The 24 elders, they continue to praise God. Now they praise him for his eternal reign. They say, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. Now it is true that the Lord Jesus is reigning right now. He is reigning in glory right now. But that is not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about a coming day when the reign of Christ, the reign of our God, is going to be visible. He's talking about a coming day when Heaven and earth unite, as it were, and become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And God is going to reign visibly over all, and not just for a few years, not just for a few millennia, but forever and ever and ever. Again, I love the confidence of these 24 elders, right? In terms of our study of Revelation, we haven't yet seen Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire but when the seventh trumpet blows, the elders are so certain of the victory that they speak as if it's already happened. Now imagine, because he knows the Bible, what it must be like to be Satan. Think about it. He knows he's defeated. He knows his defeat is certain. His back was broken, as it were, at Calvary. He's just doing as much damage as he can until the inevitable time comes when he's going to be defeated. The application for us as followers of Jesus is that we should be marked by confidence in our Lord's ultimate victory. So we win with him. So culture in America is growing darker. Persecution in America does seem to be ratcheting up, though I think we must be very honest and say that the physical persecution that we experience is nothing compared to what's experienced by our brothers and sisters in nations like Afghanistan and North Korea and Sudan, even this morning. Yes, our culture is being given over to a corrupt mind. In my lifespan and over the last 30 years, American culture broadly has gone from disliking to accepting to celebrating homosexuality and transgender ideology. It's very possible that the day may come. It has already come in Australia and Canada when pastors may potentially face hate speech charges 
for preaching what the Bible very clearly teaches about sexuality. But despite all of these challenges, God wins. God wins. Again, that's the heart of this passage. God wins. So we cannot be alarmists. And we cannot be defeatists. And we should root our hope where our hope is. Our hope is in the Lord who's going to reign forever. Now, I've used this quote before, but I love it. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about the confidence we should have in God's ultimate victory. He said, you never met an old salt down by the sea who was in trouble because the tide had been ebbing out for hours. No, he waits confidently for the turn of the tide and it comes in due time. Yonder rock has been uncovered during the last half hour, and if the sea continues to ebb out for weeks, there'll be no water in the English Channel, and the French will walk over from Shoreburg. Nobody talks in that childish way, for such an ebb will never come, nor will we speak as though the gospel would be routed and eternal truth driven out of the land. We serve an almighty master. If our Lord but does stamp his foot, he can win for himself all the nations of the earth against heathenism and Islam and agnosticism and modern thought and every other foul error. Who is he that can harm us if we follow Jesus? How can his cause be defeated? At his will, converts will flock to his truth as numerous as the sands of the sea. They praise God for his eternal reign. I thought I heard an amen out there. Third, verse 18 The 24 elders praised God for his just judgments. Look at verse 18. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, when the elders say the nations were angry, they're taking us back to Psalm 2, which we read earlier in the service. And there we saw that the kings of the earth are raging against the Lord. They're raging, trying to throw off his chains. It's how they view God's rule. They view it as slavery. They do everything they can to break his power. But what does God do? He who sits on the throne laughs. He holds them in derision. And he warns them. Do you notice that he warns them? Because he's good. And he says, repent now before it's too late. Turn away from your rebellion now before judgment falls. And judgment falling is the focus of the praise of verse 18. They say the time has come for the dead to be judged. Now, two groups are mentioned in verse 18, God's servants and God's enemies. God's servants are the prophets and saints, those who fear God's name, both small and great. So all who have served God, Old Testament prophets, New Testament saints, great and small, those that are well-known, those that are unknown, those that have served God in mighty ways, those that have served the Lord just a little. On the day of judgment, God is going to graciously and rightly and justly apportion eternal rewards. And here's the thing. He's going to reward us for the grace that he produced in us. And that's amazing. It's amazing. From him and to him and through him are all things. Even the grace in our lives that will lead us to be rewarded forever. It flows from him to us so that we might live for him. And we will be recipients of his grace. And so we will praise him forever. But it is going to be so different for God's enemies. Look at verse 18. 
And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Those who destroy the earth refers to those who have brought ruin upon the earth through their sin and their rebellion against God. God's good creation. Genesis 1.31, he looks at all he's made and says, Behold, it's very good. And we look around the world today with famine and pestilence and war. All of it a result of man's rebellion. Satan, the Antichrist, all who have opposed God in great and small ways, all who have refused to live for God, all who have refused to bow the knee to Jesus have made this earth God created more like hell than like heaven. And the Bible says they will be destroyed. And I'm not sure you could pick a stronger word. It's a word that means ruined. It's a word that means corrupted. Uh, It's a word that means destroyed. In other words, God's punishment will be just. Uh, The punishment will fit the crime. Those who have ruined God's world will themselves be ruined by God. And that forever and ever and ever. And so we come in our passage to an incredibly difficult truth that the Bible teaches And we don't teach it with any joy, but we dare not not teach it because it's for your good that you would hear that a day of judgment is coming and that those who live for themselves and spurn God and spurn a relationship with him and decide it's better for them to live for themselves and to determine their own way and to create their own identity and pursue self-expression as the highest good and who are marked by a life of radical selfishness and brokenness. The Bible says that a day is coming when they will stand before him and they will face judgment. And that judgment, those who have followed Jesus will be rewarded. But on the day of judgment, those who have rejected salvation offered in Christ, those who have rejected God through their willful rebellion and breaking of his commands. They're going to face his judgment and that forever and ever and ever. And there are no words that are strong enough to get across the weight of what that means. But the picture that's used is fire. It's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's outer darkness. It's utter isolation It's endless. And so all who fall under God's judgment will experience destruction forever and ever and ever. And that's the warning that we must give you this morning. You see, we can't sugarcoat it. I'm not authorized to stand up here and say, it's going to be fine. The Bible doesn't teach it's going to be fine. But here's the thing. The Bible does teach that there is a glorious and gracious Savior, and that's Jesus. Uh, The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And the Bible holds out to you this morning, salvation is offered. How? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came into this world, and he came purposely, purposefully, for the sake of living a perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness, always submitting himself to the will of his heavenly father, always loving others in precisely the way that he would want to be loved, fulfilling the entire law of God. 
in the place of broken and sinful people like you and like me. People who are not able to stand before God based on our records. And he died on the cross willingly as a sacrifice, bearing in himself himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And that's glorious. And the truth this morning is that there's a way for you to enter into life this morning. It's by turning from your sin and turning from living for yourself. Instead, putting your trust wholly and completely on Christ, who is the all-sufficient Savior. And he's offered to you this morning. If you will cry out for mercy, if you'll ask him to forgive you, if you, will, if you will get alone and get honest with God and say, be merciful to me, a sinner, or if you will at least pray, God, if what that man is saying is true, show me. And then don't be lazy about your never dying soul, but seek it out. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Why is he significant? Oh, friend, we would love to talk with you about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because it is the hope that has rescued us. And we'd love to talk with you about that. Christ Fellowship, looking at verse 16 and 18, we see the 24 elders praise God for his glorious attributes, his eternal reign, and his just judgment. The application for us is simple, or God is worthy of praise. And so we should praise him throughout the week. And when we gather together on Sunday morning, my prayer in particular is that we would worship him with joyful hearts together. Do you notice it's a joyful passage and who's praising God? It's heavenly voices joined together with the 24 elders. It's corporate worship. And we get a foretaste of that every Sunday when we gather together, we get to worship this glorious God. May God help us to worship him as he deserves. Now, much more briefly, a third truth Our God will keep all his covenant promises. Look at verse 19. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder an earthquake and severe hail. As we said earlier, the ark of God in the Old Testament was known as the ark of the covenant. It contained a copy of the Ten Commandments. It symbolized God's presence with his people and God showing John a vision of this ark at this time, just as he's about to to take up his kingdom in a visible and eternal way is a reminder that God will keep all of his covenant promises to his people. And it's precious. It's precious because the reality is, listen, God's people have suffered throughout history And God's people will suffer intensely at the end of time. That's what the Bible teaches. And yet, in the midst of that suffering, they will know the end. They will know that God wins. They will know that he keeps all of his promises, that our God is a faithful God whom we should trust. So, whether we're alive when the Antichrist comes or not, God's promises will never fail. He will provide for his children Uh, He will keep watch over our souls. He'll keep us from stumbling and he will bring us safely home. So what's the application? We must trust in the promises of God. I love the picture of this in John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. At the beginning of his journey, Christian, he falls into the slaw of despond and and it's a place of of sadness. It's darkness. He's he's falling down. He's sinking uh, into despair. Why did he fall? Because he didn't follow the steps And what are the steps? He finds out later that the steps are the promises of God. And the picture is this. The way we live the Christian life is by faith in the promises of God. 
uh, that we step on them as it were, that they're a foundation for our lives, that when a particular trial or difficulty or temptation arises, we pick out the, the correct promise in the same way that a physician would pick out the correct prescription. And we rest our souls upon the promise of God. We take God at his word and we move forward, praying for strength, trusting in God by faith, and we keep marching headlong till we get to the celestial city. That's how we live the Christian life. And we can do so because our God is faithful to all of his promises. According to history, even though Richard the Lionheart was born in Oxford, England, he spent most of his youth in Portier, France. It's very likely that he did not speak English. It's very likely that he didn't even like England. He once said that he would sell England if he could find a buyer. He only spent about six months of his reign in England. You see, actually, the story of Richard the Lionheart is more a myth than a history. But the story of redemption is better than that. It's what C.S. Lewis called a true myth. It is the capital S story that we find ourselves a part of. And it has a glorious ending. God wins. And all who are his win with him. So may God help us be bold and confident and joy-filled as we serve him in this coming week. And let's pray.